Okay, so I just want to recap. Just I'm going to just read the uh, portion of the scripture that we studied last week, and then I just want to spend. Um, I don't know if you have your notes from last week, but there was some uh, the uh, last portion on page three and four that I didn't get to cover. I want to spend a few minutes on tonight before we move on into the notes that you have tonight. Joe, just uh, by way of announcement, we will not meet next Friday night. It's a holiday weekend, so. Okay, so if you have your Bibles or if you have your devices, uh, I want to I begin tonight in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, where we read, For it was fitting for him. So again, we're dealing, the author is dealing with the subject of why it was necessary that Jesus as the Messiah, as the Redeemer, would come in a form that was at a species level lower than angels, right? Angels have the capacity to do things that, that humans cannot do. They're trans-dimensional uh, and so on and so forth. But interestingly enough, and, and you know, we don't talk about angels a lot, but whenever angels appear in the Bible, how do they appear? They appear as men, right? They appear as men, and, uh, and oftentimes they appear indistinguishable from other men, right? And so, uh, you know, the little babies with the wings and the bow and arrow and, uh, and, and those kinds of images are really unbiblical. There is one, one rather strange vision in the book of Zechariah where there's a prophecy against Babylon, where there's a picture of two women with wings carrying this basket uh, into the land of Shinar, which we know is Babylon, and then a lead seal is placed on top of it. But you can't really build an angiology on that. So, so there are constraints that humans have that angels do not have, right? Uh, but interestingly enough, as I've said in the past, God created all things and put them under the dominion of mankind. And so Satan, who is, you know, a cherub, and uh, I would, I, I disagree with the view, the predominant view that names cherubs as angels. I think they're a different being altogether than angels. And, uh, and uh, they, they are a different class, right? Um, but humans are under restrictions that angelic beings are not under, right? And, and uh, it, so Satan, a cherub that fell, he usurped the authority of humanity over God's creation when, when he deceived Eve and when Adam volitionally fell into sin. So as I said in the past, God had created all things. He created the earth. He created the physical universe. And he is, he is, in a sense, given it to mankind, right? And we were the ones who were to rule over these things and be a physical, physically image God. In other words, rule over God's creation in a righteous way, the way God rules over all things. But that authority was usurped. And so humanity still retains ownership, but they've lost possession, right? Just like when Israel sinned 
when they violated the covenant, God expelled them from the land. It was a land that's been promised to them under the Abrahamic covenant, which we know is a what kind of covenant? A unilateral or unconditional covenant, right? And so, but under the, under the, under the conditions of the Sinai covenant, they would retain possession of the land as long as they fulfill the requirements of, of, the, of the law. However, the ownership of the land is never, was not something that could ever be taken away from them because it was given to them under the condition of the Abrahamic covenant. So just like Israel lost possession of the land but retained ownership as a result of their disobedience, when you take that now on a species scale, humanity has lost possession as a result of disobedience, but has not lost ownership. That's why it was necessary for Christ to come in, in the form of a human, so that he could stand as a representative of humanity and assert, assert humanity's right to retake ownership or possession of what God had given to him. And so that's why it was necessary. Okay. All right. So reading on again in verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so uh, do you remember what that word captain kind of means in the, in the, in the Greek text? What the, what the basic meaning is of that word, captain of their salvation. The author, the pioneer, the trailblazer. Remember last week I used the illustration of the Sherpa who goes up and climbs Mount Everest without the benefit of ropes. He's the one who sets the ropes so the climbers that come after him you know, have, have stable footing. And perfect means uh, uh, complete mature, captain of the salvation, perfect through sufferings. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. How, in that, how can you apply that word perfect through suffering when Christ, right, is divine? How can there be, does that therefore imply in, that there was imperfection in, in Christ? Doug? Okay. Um, but we know that Christ's humanity grew in wisdom and stature and, and in favor with God. So I always take those kind of statements regarding his humanity because he learned things by the things that he suffered. Well, that's, that's, that, well, that's an interesting concept, and that which brings me to the second part of the question is how does suffering relate to that? Right? To learning, how does it, how does suffering relate to learning in 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 the in the life of Christ, and how does it also relate to us in our walk, right? And that's that's the relationship there that I think the author is driving at. That just as Christ was perfected through suffering, right, um, we are perfected through suffering, or 
We, suffering is a learning process for us. For, thus, for those of us who see it that way. See, that's the thing, is it all depends on what you use as your calibrating standard, right? If you see suffering as just some pointless, random, chaotic event, then, then that's what it'll be. You lose the benefit of it. But if you are in Christ, if you are a true child of God, then God ordains suffering to come into your life because he uses it as a tool. He uses it as a teaching tool. So, so this is the way we need to understand suffering. So how, so how would suffering in the life of Jesus be a teaching tool for him? What's that? That's right, compassion towards humanity. He's, he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, and that comes out later in the text, right? And so it's not that there was any imperfection in, in Christ. There was no imperfection because if there were, he would not be able to stand as a fe the federal headship over, over God's chosen people, right? Uh, so, so that that being made perfect speaks to the fact that as a high priest, he can sympathize and understand the human plight or the human condition. Right? Okay, Doug, you had a comment you wanted to make. Um, so, in, in my own life, um, suffering. Or Well, yeah, because they don't get easier. They never get easier. <laughs> they never get easier. They keep getting, they keep getting harder. Sorry, but, guys. but, but see that, and and herein lies the herein I think lies where there's a disconnect. I think anybody who spends any time in the Bible theoretically sees that. We know that all things work together for good. We know that, right? They're ingrained in our mind. The problem is, is when we come under the physical and psychological stress of pressure, of affliction, of those things, those theoretical concepts, they, they, don't, they don't translate psychologically into, okay, let me stop here. What's going on? What's going on here? I, I know God is, it's, you know what I mean? It's like a presence of mind in the midst of the storm to say, this sucks. It hurts. I don't like it one bit. I really don't agree with you, God, why you're doing it. But I know you're doing it for a reason. A good reason. A, good reason. a reason that ultimately is going to bring you glory and is going to be to my benefit. Right? That's what happens. But what happens is when we get into physical stress, when we get into psychological stress, those theories, they recede into the background. You know, like I was saying yesterday, you know, I, I did a, a funeral service yesterday, is when we get to funerals, we talk about, 
you know, it's easy to focus on death because death is something that we've all seen and we've all experienced in some way. But the other part of death is resurrection. And resurrection is a difficult concept, even though we understand it and accept it as an article of faith. None of us have ever seen it. None of us have ever experienced it. So in our brain, that still resides in the part where theories are stored and, and all of those things, right? And, it's, and it, it, it takes a great deal of intention, that's the word, intention, to bring that out of those regions and into, into focus in our lives, right? So, so with Christ, I think, I think that, that perfecting work, that perfecting that is talking about there is that he, in his humanity, he still developed as a human being. And he, and he came to a place where not only in his divinity, but in his humanity too, he was, he was qualified to be a high priest, right? So you know, you know that throughout the history of Israel, there were high priests who were, they were not qualified to be high priests, right? They couldn't care about the people. They, they were there to, to enrich, enrich them, themselves or gain power. But with Christ, Christ as a high priest, because he endured through the same trials, right? He endured all the hardships of life, just and much more actually. Uh, he's, he, 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 he had the capacity for sympathy to be more than just a theoretical concept that was stored somewhere in his divine nature or in the back of his human mind. Okay. All right. And verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren and in the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And so he, he yokes himself up here. This is a quotation out of Psalm 22. He yokes himself up there uh, with all those who, who have the same, have been given the same faith supernaturally by the Father, he yokes himself up with them and identifies with them as his brethren. And then verse 13, and I will put my trust in him. And finally, here I am in the children whom God has given me. So there's a, there's a deep intimate connection that comes as a result. But, and that connection is not just a theological one. There's a, there's a connection there on the human species level because he has endured all of this, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of being human being. There is, a, there is a bond, like, you know, how there's a, like, you notice that there are specific um, trades, specific uh, lines of work where there is a fraternity that develops, like, like policemen, firemen, you know, they say you're on the job. Same thing is true, believe it or not, with aircraft mechanics. There's a fraternity there that develops, that there's a, as a result of, of having these things in common, there's a relationship kind of like a fraternity that develops there. That's what, that's kind of like what this is, what this is getting, is getting at. All right, verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have 
partaken of flesh and blood, he also likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So again, now this is one of those things. Again, it, it, we, does anyone here not believe that? Does anyone here not believe that Christ has, has broken the chains with which, Christ, which with Satan held us in bondage, those chains being the fear of death, the fear of death driving most of the decisions that we make in life. Does anyone not believe that? But not believing, not believing it and living in the light of that are two entirely different things. Are they not? Are they not? And so again, that's one of those concepts that we believe, I absolutely believe it because it's an article of faith, but it's in that back part of the brain along next to resurrection and where theory resides. The real work, the real sanctifying work, and I don't think God does this for us, right? Resides in us moving that stuff from the, the, the realm of theory into the realm of, yeah, this is it. We, I believe this, and this is how I live my life. The question is, how do we do that? Yeah, int intentionality, but how? Intentional in what way? So I'm going to wake up this morning, and you know I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, hey, you know what? I absolutely believe that I don't have to fear death, and I don't have to live in fear of death. Therefore, all of the ways that I, uh, that I was tailoring my life because of the fear of death, I don't have to do it anymore, right? And so I, I'm, that's going to be my intention tomorrow morning. But how do I execute that intention? How do I, how do I get there? You know, <laughs> that's not an easy thing to do, right? I mean, we, you know, didn't Jesus say that every hair of our head is numbered? Well, what does that mean exactly? What does that exactly mean? That when Jesus made the statement, every hair on your head is numbered. What does it mean? No, not somebody other than Doug. <laughs> Megan, what does it mean? The days are numbered that, mm, I don't know how to explain it, but I know in my mind what it N is. Nancy? Okay, that's a very general <laughs> statement. <laughs> Dennis? What, what that essentially means is just like God has ordained the day of our birth, he has ordained the day of our death. And nothing could change that. Well, even further, he knows all the details about it. He knows when a hair falls out no. to that point. He knows the numbers, right? Yeah. He knows when there's one left. Some of us have... You know. <laughs> But well, he knows what's happening today in our lives. That's right. So, so here's the thing. How many here believe that? But how, how, how easy is that to live 
in the, in the light of that knowledge in our daily lives. Again, it resides in that part of the brain. Just like when Jesus said, hey, why are you worried about clothing? Why are you worried about food? Why are you worried about housing? Look at, this, look at the grass of the field, right? Like, and that not even a sparrow drops to the ground apart from your father knowing it. You don't need to worry about that stuff. What you need to do each and every day is seek the kingdom of God first. The promise is if you make that your top priority in your life, the promise is that God will provide all of those things. Either that's true or God's a liar. But yet how many of us live in accordance with that? So the interesting struggle that we're poking at, basically, is well before we come to faith in Christ, we have a very well-oiled machine called a coping mechanism for all the struggles of life. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be, you, so you, you, really that's it. You have to be intentional about, so, so with me, right? With me, it's all about control. So, you know, what, what did that heart attack teach me about me? Was that inside, I always worked hard to be the master of my own destiny, right? That was me. I always knew how to make money. I always knew how to get things done. I always knew how to come out on top, so to speak, right? I always knew how to be able to adjust to changing circumstances, always well. And then the heart attack left me, I don't know anything anymore. I'm not in control of anything anymore, nothing. I never was in control, you know? It was just being self-deceived that I was in control. But God just waylaid me. Right? And then, okay, I mean, I'm, I've just undergone, you know, major cardiac, a major cardiac procedure. I'm in the hospital. The rent is due. I don't have that much money to carry me down the road. And if I can't work, I don't have health insurance. So what happens to the God only knows how much this is going to cost bill. And all of those things down the line that I suddenly realized, I was never in control of anything. And so it was like, okay, I'm sorry, God. I'm not in control here. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to trust in you. And one by one, it didn't come like, you know, like a wind out of the north, you know, and the, the Apache cherubim flying into the rescue. It didn't come like that. It came, well, this is the first thing that needs to be dealt with. God dealt with that. He showed me how that was going to deal with that. But, but then it was like, but then it was like, all right, um, 
I think I can still do this while you want me to do that. So if this is not what you want me to do, God, I won't do it, but I need you to show me. Boom, COVID hospital again within 30 days. Okay, God, I got it, right? But now how am I going <laughs> to... But now, God, how am I going to get past this? And he would, he would show me, but he, would, he, he didn't just resolve things for me without requiring me to take a step of faith into the unknown. And that seems to be the way it works. He will, he, he will respond. I mean, he's got it all laid out, and he will respond. But nobody, you like, I don't like living like that. I, I'm going to be, I'm being honest, I'm being honest with you here. I don't like living like that. Leave your family and your town and go yeah. to a place I'll show you later. Yeah, yes. No, it does not. But here's the thing. Yeah, but he doesn't say that we're not going to have anxiety about it. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus say, do not worry about tomorrow? That's given as a command, not a, not a condition of advice. That's actually a command. Well, it's like, again, it's that thing where it's like you can repeat, you know, the same things over and over again, all the principles were taught. So, so. That doesn't make that go away, whether it should or shouldn't. So here, here is, here is the way it seems to be playing out in my life anyway is that it seems that with each thing that comes I'm more confident in trusting in him and given to less anxiety about the thing right. so it's pr- it doesn't go away all at once it's I think it's incremental. But you, <laughs> you see this played out in Abraham's life. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, he went to Haran. Yeah. He stopped. Yeah. Right. He, and then not only that, but he goes to Egypt and says, yeah. "She's my wife." Yeah. And his son does the same thing. Right. And but you know, but by the end of Abraham's life, take thou your son, your only son Isaac, yep. whom you love, yeah, and come and sacrifice. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's the thing that we don't see when we read these wonderful stories in the scriptures, is that they were people just like us and subject to anxiety, subject to, you know, how am I going to feed my kids, all of that stuff, right? And all of those things. And so the point being is that Christ can sympathize with that because he, he not just on the divine level, he understood those things, but on the human level, he experienced them himself, the emotions, the feelings. Okay. And as a result, part of his payment now, it frees us from being bondage to that. And how do, we, how do we get there? How do we get to living our lives in, in, full, in the full blossomed light of the fact that death is not something that we need to fear? That if we follow him, he's got it covered. He's going to take care of it. That, that this life 
as I said last week, is as bad as it gets for the believer. It's never going to get worse than this for you if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, it's as good as it gets for you. It doesn't get any better than this for you, right? And I think it, it, I think it happens incrementally over the course of time, but I can tell you what will stunt that growth, and if not arrested altogether, if you're not spending a considerable amount of time in here. Because this is where you find the patterns that you can associate with the patterns that are happening in your life, right? Were it not for Abraham, were it not for you know, the patriarchs and what we see with the apostles, there's a, there's a clearly recognizable pattern in the lives of all of those who follow Christ. And, and when we find ourselves, when we see our patterns line up with their patterns, then what are we? We're, we're fellow sufferers for the gospel, in the gospel of Christ. You see, we're, we're in that fraternity. We're in that brotherhood. Doug, you wanted to say something? Um, Yeah. Right? If you can be just as stunted, raising and raising and raising and not doing it. Sure. But are you really reading if you're not doing? Well, the rabbis would say no. Yeah. I would say no, too. If you're not, re I mean, if you're reading and not doing, are you really reading? No. You know? So, but I can tell you one thing is you can, you can be a doer without reading, right? Because there are Buddhists and there are many good doers who are not readers of God's word. But to do it, to be a doer in the way that God wants us to be doers and what the ultimate motive is requires that we become diligent students in the scriptures, right? When we, are, when we fall into times of sadness, when we fall into to periods of depression, where do we tend to go in the scriptures? Psalms. To the book of Psalms. Why? Because we find a fellow traveler in David. Do we not? We find a fellow traveler there. And that's what this is all about. You see, Christ, Christ is God incarnate. He is the... He is he is the physical representation of the eternal God. So in the Old Testament, you had the Shekinah, right? The Shekinah was the physical manifestation, a physical manifestation of the glory of God. That's what Jesus is. He is the Shekinah. He is the physical manifestation of the glory of God. And, and he, he knows what the human condition is like. And he's come, uh, and he's come, and he has freed us from bondage to death. Okay, picking it up in verse 14, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply. Oh, wait a minute, that's chapter 6. What am I doing? Okay. <laughs> verse seven, verse 16, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So there are, there are a whole bunch of angels that are, that are, that are not, he, he does, there's no redemption for the fallen angels. So he didn't come to redeem angels. He came to redeem humanity. Verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God 
to make propitiation for the sins of, him, of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He suffered under temptation, though he never succumbed to temptation, but he still experienced what it felt like to come under a temptation. And because of that, uh, he's able to aid those who are under temptation. Okay. So, let me just finish this off here. We got time. Um, Jesus never came, never, this is on page three of last week's notes. Jesus never became an angel because God never intended to save angels. He became a man to provide salvation for man. He became a Jewish man for three reasons. To become merciful, uh, an attribute of humanity. To become faithful in the administration of his high priestly function. Three, to become a high priest because only a man could function as a high priest. Four, he was the only person who could enter the holiest in Israel and perform an act that resulted in the nations receiving forgiveness of, for sins. And this he could only do once a year, to act as a high priest. Two, the kinsman redeemer. Under the law of Moses, there were many ways that a Jew could get himself into trouble. And one of those ways was to fall into a state of indebtedness beyond his ability to repay naturally or normally. If a Jew found himself in that situation, there was only one option left. He had to sell himself into slavery and work as a slave for six years. He would be released in the seventh year. A second possibility was the option of the kinsman redeemer. If a kinsman redeemer would assume and pay in full his indebtedness, he could be freed from slavery before the six years were up. To qualify, the kinsman redeemer had to meet three requirements. He had to be a kinsman or a blood relative. A stranger could not do it. Two, he had to have the price of redemption. And three, he had to be willing to pay the price. It was not a mandatory role. So in conclusion of this part, all those who sin are slaves of sin. This is true of all humanity. In the case of the Jews, they were also enslaved to the curse of the law due to their inability to keep the law. Jesus fulfills all three requirements of the kinsman redeemer for both groups. He was a kinsman by becoming human. He was of the seed of Abraham, thus he was a kinsman of the Jews. He had the price of redemption, innocent human blood, and he was the only Jew to ever perfectly keep the law of Moses, and he was willing to take it. As he said in John 10, 18, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. The work of Jesus and its application to us as individuals in the conflict of daily life. Again, verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able also to aid those who are tempted. Jesus can help us in the struggles of life because he was tempted and he suffered. The word aid means to succor or to run to the cry of. When believers are in need and crying, he runs to help. He runs to assist us in our temptations and sufferings. While angels are valued servants to Christ, to us as well, they are not greater than Christ. In God's plan, they are not even as valued as mankind. The Father made no allowance for the redemption of angels, and he considered every fallen angel lost forever. Okay, so that brings us to the end of that lesson. And we've got...
a few minutes. We've got about 15 minutes to move on in the text. So we're going to move on and start looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Any questions so far or any comments on any of the ground that we've covered? Okay. So um, I'm going to start in the notes under point C. As we transition into chapter 3, a review of the writer's purpose. There was some concern that some in the Jewish church are not fully apprehending the person and work of Jesus proper, properly. So there was a real concern here among the author that there might have been some Hebrew, some Jewish people in this church who had actually not made the final step uh, to embracing Christ as the Redeemer. Uh, so it's likely he has this concern from things he's heard going on in the early church. Jews were returning to living under the law, sacrificing in the temple, holding the old covenant in higher regard than the new covenant, and living as if the, as if the Messiah had never appeared. In the first two chapters, the writer spoke of their greater reverence for angels and the mistaken thinking that it reflects. In chapter 3 and into chapter 4, the writer returns to that thought, asking his audience again to consider Jesus as the apostle and high priest. The first verse opens with a call to the holy brethren, partakers of the holy calling. All right, so Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. I'll just read it, and then we'll, uh, verses 1 to 6, and then we'll, we'll, come, we'll go back and start working through it. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence of the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Okay, so right away this begins with the word therefore, which we know means what? On the basis of what has been spoken before. What are we to, uh, to glean from this? Well, as I said, first, the first thing we, we need to... We need to look at that phrase, holy brethren, right? And so in the Greek, there's no mistaking it. It's referring to those who have been called apart unto holiness. Now, there are really two possible scenarios here. So remember that even those Jews who were not believers were still considered to be a holy people because they were set apart under the Abrahamic covenant, right? And so, and so this is something that Fruchtenbaum you know, argues in his commentary that there is a double reference here. There is a, there's a reference to those who are, who are truly called apart under, under the terms of you know, uh, predestination and election, Ephesians chapter 1. But there's also a double reference there to those who may be in the church who have not have not been converted to Christianity 
who are still considered to be holy brethren insofar as that they are a part of the, of the Jewish nation, a people that is set apart unto God, right? Okay. So the, the two references, just so that I know that I understand. One group are Messianic believers. Yes. And the other group is Jewish people or believers, not necessarily Messianic. Right. Not necessarily messianic, and so he's so according to Fruchtenbaum, and I'm not sure if I, I agree with this, um, but I wanted to give that to you because it is a possibility, right? Because this was a, this was a, a, a concern in the mind of the author of Hebrews that there were people who, if if there are people, well, think about it this way: if there were Pastor Roman, if there were people in your church who were struggling with the concept that Jesus was higher, was not as valuable, his teaching not as valuable as that of angels, would there be a question into your mind whether or not they were truly believers? Of course there would be, right? So this is a, this is a, a, a legitimate thing because he, what does he launch into right into in Hebrews chapter 1? Not only is he higher than the angel, but he's God, right? So he goes right at that. So, you know, I, I think it's a, a, a legitimate point at least to consider. That's why I included it in the notes. But okay. But do you think he's writing to all of the Jewish people or the Jewish people that are associated with congregations? I think he's writing to the Jewish people that are associated with congregation with congregation. Because that seems to be, you know, where he centers his, his, his discourse on. Okay, so, holy brethren, there are two scenarios. Those who were still in a state of unbelief because they were Jews were still potentially referred to as holy brethren. That's scenario one. And scenario two, those who were truly set apart. The work that the Trinity has done on our behalf has a very specific purpose. So now the notes here defaults to scenario two, those who are truly set apart, right? So it says in Ephesians chapter one, verses three to six, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every, um, every spiritual blessing, even in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. So, so most properly here, the term holy brethren, right, which means those who have been set apart, uh, is really defined, at least the, you know, the, the mechanics of it, here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, right? So God has set apart a certain X number of people for, for what purpose? As it's stated there in the notes. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, right? the praise of his glory of his grace so and that and that 
that choice, that setting apart was made when and where? Before the foundation of the world, right? Okay, and then uh, under point four, there's a quote from Ephesians 2, 7, that in ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So partakers of the heavenly calling refers to the effectual call to salvation through the grace of God. So I, I, think, I think scenario two is, is really the, the primary one, although I wanted to leave room for scenario one as well um, there. And then there's a quote there for 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Uh, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. Clearly, the above verses can only refer to genuine believers. Thus, both scenarios are not only possible, but likely to have existed in this church. Right? Do those... Well, let's think about it for a moment. Does that scenario exist in our church? Right? This scenario likely exists in every church. Right? Okay. You know what? I think I'm going to end it there before I get into the next section. Um, so we've got about five minutes left if anyone has any questions on anything that we've talked about. No, go ahead, say it. Did I say that? In more words. How did I say that? Suffering is learning. Living is suffering. Is done. Wow. You got that from me? Yep. Wow. Yeah, that was like weird. I mean, I thought I was expressing wonder in the fact that, you know, I'm learning as I'm going and I'm becoming stronger. Well, that don't you got an issue with that? Don't take it up with me. Take it up with God. But am I wrong in that thinking? Can we put this on his head? You've been through difficult times recently, and God has put you in to this place of unknown where you've had to take a step of faith. Yeah. So, what's the emotional feeling when you see God come in and do what He's going to do? Proof of sonship that I'm not alone. That he's there. You, you see the effect of the wind. That God shows up. Right. It's it's that's it. He doesn't show up in the wind. That's the way he shows up. It's like God just showed up. Yep. You know? He just showed up. And in that, and in that, there's there's rejoicing on several counts. Number one, I don't need to worry about that. Number two, it's proof of sonship. Right? 
That's the big thing. You know, that's the thing that's always on my mind, is sonship, you know? Go ahead. I mean, that's not a secondhand anyway. You were there, and you know, yeah. you, and you, you guys saw me go through the low points. You know, when you were like quoting scripture to me. And in that, you were act exactly acting just like Job's three friends. <laughs> and, and, yeah. Right? You, <laughs> but the reality, no, but the reality is, is, but see, that's what I picked up from that. Because quoting the scripture. And that was my whole question, the faith and motion, right? Yeah, it but. No, it doesn't take it all away, but it but it's just I I had to go through that valley. Well, that's, right? That's the and and going through that valley is like, you know what? I don't I just nobody take this the wrong way, okay? But I don't need people quoting the scriptures to me. I know them fairly well. Right? I know them fairly well. And I know what they say and I know what I have to go through. And, and nobody throughout that whole process said, said anything to me that was of any surprise to me, any big revelation. I needed to go through. And sometimes saying those things actually makes it worse. Now I'm, speak, I'm, speaking from my, I'm speaking from my perspective. I'm speaking from my perspective. Yeah, you get to do it again. Right, so the, the, the <laughs> refrain is always, you need to be patient when you're driving. Yeah, so... Oh, you get to learn this again. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, I mean, it, that's that's it. I, I went through it, you know, and, and one day at a time. You know, the, thing, the thing that got me through it is... Now let me tell you something. I threw around, I threw my arms around God, and I did not let go. Well, how do you do that? I'll tell you how I did it. I kept, I kept my snout buried in God's word. Just absolutely, because whenever I came out of God's word, the anxieties would start ramping up. If you, I don't know if, if anyone, if you've ever struggled with anxiety, if you've ever gone through a period, you know, you know what it's like. And you know that it's absolutely fundamental that you keep your face buried in the scriptures. That's still me to this day. I don't, I don't stay buried in the scriptures because, you know, I want to be the guy who always raises his hands with the answers. For me, it's a matter of survival. It's a matter of survival for me. And I don't get why it's not a matter of survival for everyone who names Christ as Lord and Savior.